Let's pray together. Father, you are a speaking God. And we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would make us into a listening and an obedient people. For the glory of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, right. So if you're joining with us for the first time, we have been in a series looking together at the priorities of Jesus. And what we've said is that we're, we, we want to know as we enter a new season as a church, what is it that Jesus was about in the world? Because in seeing what Jesus was about, we can discern what we ought to be about in the world. And as over the last few weeks, we've seen a variety of things that we've said are priorities of Jesus. And we said, first of all, that Jesus came in order to form a community of disciples. Jesus begins his ministry, he launches his ministry by calling to himself fishermen who experience his grace and then who are invited to walk and to live in his way and then to participate with him on his mission. And so Jesus came to call disciples, to form a community of disciples. And if this is what Jesus was about, then this is what we as a church ought to be about as well. Secondly, we said that Jesus came not only to make disciples, but to restore the broken. And we looked a couple weeks ago at the story of Jesus healing the man who was paralyzed. And we said that Jesus came not only to restore and to heal broken bodies, Jesus came to restore broken lives and broken relationship with God and to put us back in relationship with God. And so Jesus came in order to restore broken people. And then we saw last week that Jesus came in order to eat with sinners. Jesus opened up his table and he welcomed into his table and therefore into his life and into his heart those who were on the very margins. And outsiders have become insiders around the table of Jesus. And so what is it that Jesus is about in the world? Well, we said that Jesus is about making disciples and Jesus is about restoring the broken and Jesus is about eating with sinners. And this morning we're gonna add one more priority to the list. And this priority is perhaps the most uncomfortable, the most disconcerting of them all, and it's this. This morning we're gonna see that Jesus came in order to challenge, to deconstruct, to take apart the religious establishment and to invite us into something incredibly beautiful and compelling. Now, I remember I, I wrote this, uh, this, this, this sentence this week and I found myself deeply inspired by this. Jesus came to deconstruct the religious establishment and invite us into something more beautiful. And then all of a sudden it, it occurred to me, I am the religious establishment. I mean, I'm a paid minister and I preach in this beautiful building with the stained glass windows. In some ways, this is disconcerting. It's uncomfortable because what we're talking about is Jesus coming to challenge people like us. And so we're going to look at this together this morning. And we're going to see it together in the Gospel of Mark. Over the last few weeks, we've been in the opening two chapters of Mark's Gospel, Mark 1 and 2. And up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been marked by growing popularity. He is healing the sick, he's cleansing the lepers, he's casting out demons, 
He is teaching with unsurpassed brilliance, and the crowds love him. And so everywhere he goes, people are flocking to him, and they're coming around him. Crowds and crowds and crowds of people. But where we come to our text this morning, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 3, verse 6, we see a marked transition, and the mood shifts, and we see a change from growing popularity to growing opposition against Jesus. And the main opposition to Jesus comes from a place that is ironic, it is surprising, in some ways it's interesting. The, the biggest, most significant opposition that Jesus faces comes from the most morally conservative, Bible-believing people of his day. The Pharisees. Now, in the first century, there were basically four or so different expressions of Judaism. And so first you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees were something of religious liberals in their day. They denied miracles and the resurrection. They didn't believe in an end-time kingdom, and so they sought, you know, they spent their time trying to get political power in the here and now. And then you had the Essenes, and the Essenes were essentially a monastic community. They saw the evils of surrounding culture, and they withdrew into the caves, and they formed these little ascetic communities. And then you had the Zealots, and the Zealots were this radicalized group of Jews, and They really were the closest thing to an Islamic fundamentalist in the first century. They were seeking violent and revolutionary means in order to achieve religious ends. So you had the Sadducees, you had the Essenes, you had the Zealots, and then you had the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the most conservative, morally upright, Bible-believing, and well-respected people of their day. And let's note well, it is these people, the people who are probably the most like people in this room, that Jesus had the biggest problem with. (laughs) That's interesting, isn't it? Now, we, we do have to check ourselves because I think immediately when we hear about the Pharisees, I mean, this is kind of the picture that comes to mind. We think of Darth Vader, the theme song comes on, you know, bum, 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 da And we imagine these Pharisees to be these very dark and sinister characters who are always creeping around in the background, waiting to accuse Jesus, galvanizing the people to want to kill Jesus. But we have to keep in mind that the Pharisees were the most well-respected, morally conservative, religiously committed, <laughs> Bible-believing people of their day. And let's know well again that these are the people that Jesus had the biggest problem with and that had the biggest problem with Jesus. Now, I wonder, how do you respond to that? What do you make of that? Now, perhaps you're in this room this morning and you think, well, that makes sense to me because Bible-believing, morally conservative, you know, religiously committed people, these are the people that I have the biggest problem with. So it makes sense that these are the people that Jesus had the biggest problem with. You know, uh, many years ago, some of you, like me, grew up watching The Simpsons, and there was a, a neighbor of The Simpsons, Maude Flanders, who was like the fundamentalist Christian in the show. And there's one episode where 
Uh, Marge runs into her and she says that she's going off to a Christian retreat where she's going to, quote, learn how to become more judgmental. And, <laughs> and for some of us, this is our experience with the church. And for some of you, it's the reason why you walked away from the church. Uh, for some, it might be the reason why you're on the verge of walking away from the church right now. But I want to invite you to consider this morning this opposition and the challenge that Jesus gave to the religious establishment. And we're going to look together this morning at three marks of a Pharisee. Now, just a, a brief warning. It is going to be your temptation this morning to listen to this sermon on behalf of someone else. Do you know what I mean by that? You're listening to it and you're like, oh, I hope she's listening. I hope they're listening. I'm going to get the CD and give it to my friend because they need to hear this. But I want to suggest that there's probably a little Pharisee that resides in the heart of us all. And even if you're not a terribly religious person, a morally conservative person, you know, it is not just religious people that have a corner, a corner on uh, self-righteous judgmental behavior. I mean, there are many self-righteous, judgmental environmentalists and animal rights activists and progressive lefties, you know. Being a self-righteous religious or being a self-righteous hypocrite is not uniquely a religious problem, it's a human problem. And so I want to invite you to consider that this problem is something that you yourself wrestle with. And so I want to develop for you this morning three marks of a Pharisee, and we're going to do this by looking at three little stories involving Jesus and the Pharisees. And as we look at each one of these marks, I just want you to ask the question, does this characterize me in any way, shape, or form? Okay, so are you guys ready for this? Okay, if you're not, we lock the doors. You can't leave anyway. So, <laughs> Mark number one, Pharisees are more attached to wineskins than to the wine. Look at where the text picks up in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Look at what it says. Now, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples do not fast? So within Judaism, it was prescribed that the Jews should fast one day a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It was a national day of fasting. But the Pharisees took this one prescribed fast day and they turned it into fasting twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so they moved from one fast day a year to 104 fast days a year. And this became a tradition that they practiced. It was something they did all the time. And so they were looking at themselves, their own religious commitment, their own spiritual commitment, and their fasting. And then they're looking over at Jesus, and what's Jesus doing? Well, Jesus isn't fasting, Jesus is feasting. And he's at all these dinner parties, eating and drinking, and so much so that he's called a glutton and a drunk. And so the, the, the Pharisees, they see this, and, and the disciples of John the Baptist even see this, and they go up to Jesus and they're like, hey, what gives? How come we're all religious and committed? And you're supposed to be the Messiah, and, and you're not fasting, you're out there feasting. And look what Jesus says. He says, well, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. Jesus essentially says, look, I'm not against fasting. The days will come when my disciples will fast. Uh, He says later in Matthew's gospel, he says, when you fast, he said to the disciples, this kind cannot come out except for by prayer and fasting. Jesus says, I'm not against fasting. There's a time and place for fasting, but now is not such a time. Now is a different time in redemptive history. Now the long-awaited messianic kingdom has finally broken in. The bridegroom has returned for his bride. He is present with you all. Do you see the claim Jesus is making about himself? It was Yahweh, the God of Israel, who was the bridegroom for Israel. And Jesus is now equating himself with the God of Israel. But he goes on. And he says, given this new time, he says, he he shares with them a parable. And he talks to us about wine and wineskins. Verse 21, he says, No one sews a piece of untruck cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And so do you see what Jesus is doing? He's equating his own kingdom ministry. Jesus has come announcing the long-awaited healing, restorative, you know, forgiving reign of God broken into the world through his life and ministry. He says, I have come, here is new wine. New wine is Jesus touching lepers that formerly were untouchable. New wine is Jesus eating with sinners that were formerly not welcome at his table. New wine has broken in with the ministry of Jesus. And he says, in essence, he's saying to the Pharisees, your old wine skins, your old traditions, your old way of doing religion cannot contain the explosive work that you are seeing in my life. Now, don't misunderstand. Wineskins are good. You actually need wineskins in order to drink wine. I mean, you don't want to just carry the stuff like this, do you? You need something to put it in. You need wineskins. And of course, tradition and structures and programs are good because these are things that sort of contain the work of God. In a sense, you could say that uh, within the ministry of the gospel in the world, there is both the trellis as well as the vine. The trellis provides structure. The trellis provides support. But the thing you want is the vine, right? That's where the money is. That's where the fruit is. That's where the wine comes from, right? And so the structure is good, but the structure is there to support the life of the vine. And what Jesus is saying is very often, when new kingdom work breaks out, it requires new structures and new containers and new programs. But very often, Pharisees get so attached to the programs and to the structures and to the trellis, to the wineskins, that they begin to treasure that over the actual wine. Or put it like this. 
There are so many great programs that the church has brought into being over the last 2,000 years. I just think in the last, you know, 50, 60, 80, 100 years, just think about some of the specialized things that have developed, especially in entrepreneurial American evangelicalism. All kinds of new programs and structures come to birth. I remember at my old church, it was a, a big Awana church. And Awana at one point was a fantastic structure. It was a good program. And within that program, God was actually at work in the life of young children, exposing them to the gospel, exposing them to his word. But what happened? Well, over time, at least in my church, the program took precedence over the actual work that God was doing in people's lives. And over time, it just kind of began to die out, and people were so committed to the structure that they didn't want to let go of it in order for a new work to break out in new ways that no longer needed Awana. Think about evangelism and different methodologies of evangelism. I remember when I was younger, I was 18, 19 years old, I remember learning Evangelism Explosion from D. James Kennedy. Some of you guys remember this? And uh, it was this little method of going out and sharing the gospel. And that was a structure. It was a program. It was a system. And actually, wine was poured into that. And God was using that to bring people to himself. But we get beyond that. And all of a sudden, God still wants to bring people to himself. But he's not going to still use the old methodologies that he used to. Think for a moment about the great Billy Graham. You know, Billy Graham and crusade evangelism. Do you, do you realize crusade evangelism with altar calls is really an advent of the 19th century? That prior to the 19th century, they didn't have these big crusades with altar calls. Altar calls, I remember, you know, at my old church, somebody said, are you going to have altar calls every Sunday? I said, no, I don't do altar calls every Sunday. And they said, well, how are people going to get saved? And I said, people are going to get saved the way they've always gotten saved because I'm going to announce the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and has defeated sin, death, and darkness. And God's Spirit is going to use that message to open people's eyes and then people are going to publicly profess their faith through baptism. That's how it's been done for 2,000 years. And maybe there'll be new methodologies. Maybe there'll be new systems. You know, right now, one of the, the big thing that's hot is uh, there's... A, it's a program in Europe called the Alpha Program that's taking people who are very secular and post-Christian through the Gospel of Mark and through a presentation of who Jesus is in homes, over dinners, over the course of like eight to ten weeks. And God is using this to bring new life into people's life. But we have to ask ourselves, are we, are we more attached to the wineskins, to the structures, to the programs, or what are we after? Are we after the thing that it contains? And what is the thing that it contains? It is the life-giving, healing, restorative grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's what we're after. And listen, we just have to remind ourselves, and I know if you're in your 80s or 90s, like you know this already because you've been around the block. You've seen so many church programs and stuff, and you've seen God use this program and that program and that program. But if you're not 80s and 90s, the rest of us probably need to listen to this. Like, programs and structures are going to change. Stuff we've done in the past, we're not going to resurrect and try to redo again and capture the glory days, right? We need new wineskins to contain the new wine of God's work among us. And so that's what we'll pursue. But the mark of a Pharisee is always that they become so attached to the wineskins, to the programs, that they actually neglect the thing itself. 
But let's move on. Let's look at a second mark of a Pharisee. Not only are they more attached to wine skins than the wine, but secondly, Pharisees are more interested in making fine theological points than meeting real human need. Look at where the text goes on. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Look at what it says. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So there was a law in the Old Testament that you could actually reap your fields, but not all the way to the edges. You had to leave the edges for the poor and the hungry and the marginalized among you so that they would have something to eat. Now Jesus and his disciples who find themselves among the poor and the marginalized and the hungry are walking through the fields and they are reaping just along the edges. They're plucking heads of grain, rubbing them and eating basically oats, which they had some honey, bananas, blueberries for breakfast, but they're eating that. And the Pharisees see it. And the Pharisees are upset. Well, why are the Pharisees upset? Well, there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. But for the Pharisees, that wasn't nearly enough. I think 613 is plenty, thank you very much, don't you? But the Pharisees, they wanted more. And so they began to take these laws and they began to do what was called putting a, let me see if I can get this, oh man. This is technology, who needs it, right? Okay, let's see here. Is this gonna work? Oh, yes. There. You can clap, that was good, right there. I just wrote that on the screen, that was awesome, yeah. So 613 laws, uh, what they would do is they would take the laws and they would create laws about the laws to create a fence to make sure that you would never break the law. And so the law said that you should not do any work on the Sabbath, but you should rest. But that, labeled, that, labeled, that left a lot to chance and question. What constituted work? What constituted rest? And so they added to the law, you shall not work on Sabbath, a bunch of laws that define what breaking that law would look like. And so, for example, you could eat radishes on Sabbath, but you were warned against dipping them in salt because you might leave them in salt too long and they would become pickled. And that would be work on Sabbath. Or it was okay to spit on a rock but you couldn't spit on the ground because that might make mud and mud was mortar and making mortar was a form of work. You could look in the mirror on Sabbath or you couldn't look on the mirror on Sabbath because you might be tempted to pluck a gray hair and that would be considered reaping. <laughs> Some of you were tempted this morning to reap. But you see, they so, I, they so defined obedience to Sabbath that Jesus and his disciples were violating the law in our text. And so like, what are you doing breaking the law? They are so freaked out that Jesus and his disciples are doing what? They're eating to meet human need. But they're so upset because they are the student of the Bible. 
They have so defined precisely what these texts mean and what obedience to them looks like that they, they were all on the theological precision and points and everything. And here's Jesus out there, you know, with his disciples eating grain and whatnot. And look at Jesus' response. He said to them, have you never read what David did? I love his response. Come on, Pharisee, don't you read the Bible? (laughs) Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? David was in need and hungry. What did he do? He and those who were with him, they entered into the house of God at the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And then he said this to them, He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He said, look, the purpose of the law was to do good for humanity. Or let's just put it like this. God gave us the Bible so that he might create a community of people who are active in love for one another. The aim of the law was to create a community of people who actively met human need and cared for each other. That's why a little bit later, Jesus is is up in in their face again in chapter 3 when they're in the synagogue, and he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save life or to kill? What Jesus is saying is that God's law was given to humanity. The law of Sabbath was given to humanity to serve human need, to promote human flourishing. And later on throughout the the Bible, we, we learn that the entirety of the law was actually given in order to serve human need and to create a community of people that are active and zealous to meet human needs and to care for people and to do good and to love others. The purpose of the law is love. But listen to how this works out. And you've seen this in church, haven't you? People get so up in arms about their interpretation of the Bible that they act like a total jerk to other people. They stop listening. They stop entering into somebody else's story and sympathizing with them. These are all acts of love. Love is when I enter into somebody else's story and I, and I listen to them and I know them and I understand them, and then I seek to do them good. But people get so up in arms about the Bible and precise interpretations of the Bible and and this, that, and the other thing that they, they actually are ignoring the whole point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is to reveal to us God's own incredible, sacrificial, magnificent, breathtaking, stunning love and then to form a community of people who enact in their own life that same love and how they treat other people. And if your study of the Bible and all your Bible studies and the stuff you go to and the stuff you read and whatnot, if all of that is not forming you into a more loving person, you're doing something wrong. That's these Pharisees. They're so up in arms about, you know, their aggressive kind of, it's not that they didn't know the Bible. It's not that they didn't study the Bible. It's not that they didn't memorize the Bible. Most of these guys had the whole thing committed to memory. Their problem was is that they missed the point of the Bible, which was to direct us to lives of love. So are you more concerned about five points than needy people? Thirdly, let's uh, look at one final mark of a Pharisee. 
Pharisees are more concerned with the outside than the inside. Look at the next story, and we almost imagine in your minds, Jesus is walking through the fields on Sabbath with his disciples. The Pharisees come alongside and they're like, what are you doing eating on the Sabbath and all this stuff? And there's this conflict. And then they all show up together at church in synagogue. Again, he entered synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? (laughs) What are they going to say to that question, right? Uh, Jesus, we want to kill people on Sabbath. No, that's not right. Ironically, though, it's precisely what they're plotting to do. Look at what it says. Jesus asked this question, but they were silent. And Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Let's just pause. And I want you finally just to note something about what's happening here. The Pharisees who know the Bible, who memorize the Bible, who go to Bible studies, and who go to church, who are leaders in church. They're teaching Sunday school classes. They're all together in church. They're all at synagogue. On the outside, it looks like these people are radically devoted to God. But then when you get a window down into their hearts, you realize that they actually want to murder God. They don't like God at all. They can't stand him, as a matter of fact. And yet they know the Bible and they love the Bible, and yet they can't stand God. Isn't that striking? They want to kill Jesus when God becomes flesh and walks in our midst. The very one that Scripture has always pointed us towards, the one that the story has always been leading up to, when the climax of the story of the Bible has finally arrived in their midst, they're like, "Ah, we're not sure we like this God. And Jesus is angered at the hardness of their hearts. But here's what we need to note. On the outside, they looked fantastic, but underneath the surface, their heart was incredibly hard. We have a dog. His name is Brutus. Brutus is a pit-lab mix, but he definitely looks more pit than lab. He just looks like a giant pit. (laughs) Now, when we lived in Albuquerque, we lived on kind of this uh, shady street, not like tree shady street, you get what I'm saying, but like a little sketchy. (laughs) And it's kind of a sketchy neighborhood. There were transients walking up and down. And uh, when we moved into our new neighborhood here, my daughters were like, Mom, Dad, this is just like our old house. It's it's shady as well. They said, but it's a different kind of shady, you know? (laughs) But it's kind of a sketchy neighborhood. And so we had this big black dog, and it was good. It was kind of like security. And now we moved to Sierra Madre. And now what was a benefit to us, an advantage in our old neighborhood, has become a liability here. Because you walk around Sierra Madre, and people are like, Brutus, come here. You know, they're like, ah. (laughs) So my wife came up with this great idea 
to uh, change his name to Prudence because he answers to Prudence as well as to Brutus. He can't make a distinction. And so when we're out and somebody sees him, we're like, oh, Prudence, come here, you know, people. Oh, you know. But look, you can change the name, but it's the same dog. Listen, you can change the external. But inside, you can be full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. God doesn't look the way man looks. Man looks at the outside. Oh my, those people know so much. They're so smart. They've read so many books. They're so theological. I love books. I love theology. I love all of that stuff. I love the Bible. Like, get to know me. I, I'm, I'm a big, I mean, my favorite sound in the world is when the, the, the UPS truck pulls up out in front because it means another book is coming to my house, to my office or something. But God doesn't give a rip about all of that. What matters to God is what's going on beneath the surface. And listen, Jesus came. You want to know the wine that Jesus came to bring? You want to know the new life that the kingdom of God brings among us? It is a new life that changes us from the inside out. It's a life that goes deep in and exposes the darkness within. It brings us to a deep humility, a deep sorrow over our own self and all the ways in which we're fractured and broken. It's not a light that breaks in and informs the mind and makes us think, oh, we know so much more. We're so much better than everyone else out there. That continually drives us to listen to voices in our head that are like an echo chamber that tell us that we're right and everyone else out there is wrong. And we go to church to be reminded that we're on the good guy's team and not on the bad guy's team like those people out there. The kingdom of God is not that kind of a light. The light of the kingdom of God comes inside and it exposes us. It cuts us as it were so that Jesus might come back and heal us. It's only those who are sick that realize they need their physician. And so Jesus comes in and he exposes our sickness, all the different ways in which our own, either we've been like the older brother, you know, the younger brother, we've gone off and we've lost our, ourselves and loose living and we've wound up in a pig pen and we've come home, or we're like the older brother who stayed back and we've just grown bitter and angry inside because you know, everyone's not as good as we are and, and we're not really getting what we think we deserve because we've been so good and they seem to just be getting it. And, and, and deep down inside, we're angry and our hearts are hard. And Jesus comes in and he says, you are a mess, but I love you. I love you. And he welcomes us in. And he says, stop spending so much of your verbal energy, of your social media energy, criticizing everyone else. And look at yourself. And let your repentance go deep from the inside. But don't stay looking at yourself. Turn and look at the gracious, merciful love of God. 
This is a God who has a very large table, and he's got a large heart, and he welcomes us in to himself.